The following message is by Pastor Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. One of my favorite bands um, growing up was uh, Journey, okay? Um, and uh, so, yeah, going to set the mood here a little, you know? Um, they were entering into the height of their popularity when I was in junior high and getting into high school. Um, Steve Perry, the lead singer of Journey, remains for me anyway the most iconic voice of 80s rock, okay? He's, he's basically the voice of my youth. And I still have fond memories of warm summer nights, uh, laying in bed uh, with my little one-speaker Sony boombox right by my head, uh, listening to the radio, to these songs, Open Arms and Don't Stop Believing and, and all these um, songs that just were the anthems of my youth. And so you can imagine how devastated I was when in the late 90s, uh, Steve Perry uh, was kicked out of the band. <laughs> uh, whether he quit or whether he kicked out, it gets a little bit confusing how that story goes. Um, the more I read about the whole breakup of the band, though, or at least <laughs> Steve Perry leaving, uh, the less sense it made to me. Something about him going on some kind of hike and then falling and needing a hip replacement and, and refusing to get that surgery or whatever. Um, and I realized that underneath all of that glamorous music and the music videos and all of the, the mythology of these bands like Journey was quite often what I, I perceived to be a lie because I think when you really get backstage, what you discover actually is that there's a lot of petty fights, there's a lot of bruised egos, there's a lot of selfish choices that are being made. Um, and, and, and I felt so betrayed by Journey, you know, and so hurt by it. I, almost, I took it personally when, when Perry left the band. Um, and so you can imagine my excitement when last year I found out that Journey was going to be inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, okay? Um, and that Steve Perry was going to be a part of it. And I was excited because the most popular bands that get inducted in that year are invited after they make their acceptance speeches to actually uh, perform on stage to the live audience there at the Hall of Fame. And um, it's interesting, most, most of the band members had not even seen Steve Perry for like two decades. Um, after he left the band, they pretty much never even saw each other. And, uh, and so no one knew what the reunion was going to be like. You know, sometimes you realize just for the sake of appearances, you just kind of put on a, a good face and, you know, act like you like each other and stuff. But when, when, when I was watching this Hall of Fame induction of Journey, uh, you could actually see a sense of genuine um, love that was being expressed with Steve Perry and the other band members. And so um, I just, with bated breath, um, <laughs> just endured these acceptance speeches, just thinking, um, Steve Perry is going to sing with Journey again, you know? And I was so excited. Uh, and so finally the moment came for the band to pick up their instruments and take the stage. And the, and, and the moment was finally on us. And I don't know if you guys watched the Hall of Fame uh, broadcast, but Steve Perry wasn't there, you know. He didn't take the stage. Um, now, no disrespect to Arnel Pineda, who's the Filipino lead singer right now for Journey, and who I think actually has a rather amazing voice. Um, <laughs> I heard an amen there. Okay. Um, but the fairy tale, the fairy tale ending to the story was supposed to be Steve Perry singing with the band again. But the fairy tale didn't happen. It didn't happen. 
And I realized that night that if it didn't happen that night, the truth is probably Steve Perry would never sing with Journey again. Um, why, why do I share this silly story? <laughs> you know, I share it because I think there is something inside all of us that longs for fairy tales. Stories where everything works out like it's supposed to. Maybe we hunger for fairy tales because our own life experience is so not like a fairy tale. Because in our lives, they're filled with setbacks and contradictions and struggles. And things seldom go as we plan them to be. And things rarely go like we hope for. And I think that in that sentiment, there is a very real danger of reading the Bible like a fairy tale. In other words, the promise of the Bible is the promise of the fairy tale, of the happy endings and everything going on exactly as we always wish it would like it, they do in fairy tales. And, and I'm going to say this. When we look at the life of David, I think it would be so easy to selectively pull out the stories that affirm the fairy tale narrative of the life of David. Only those parts of his life that fit the narrative that we want, that we wish for in our own lives. And so that at the end of the day, the life of David plays like people acting out a drama written by God where everything makes sense and all of the pieces fit together of this great hero of faith who lives this charmed life because God is with him. But what I want to argue, and I think if you've been here with me, uh, with us throughout this series in the life of David, I think one of the things that you may be hearing throughout this series is that the Bible itself refuses to reduce David's life into a simplistic and sanitized fairy tale. Instead, it tells the life of this man named David with a brutal honesty that at times leaves us wondering, what in the world are, are we supposed to make of these events that are recorded in these pages? I, I don't even know what the teaching point is here. I mean, that's often ha- how I felt as I'm prepping these messages. And the chapters that we're going to cover today Chapters 2 to 5 of 2 Samuel fit into that category of head scratchers. It was interesting. I, I, I don't know. I, I really struggled with this message because I read and reread it and go, I don't know what the teaching point is here of any of this stuff. And I, w- I was kind of looking at other preachers' sermon series on David. And what I found is when you get to these chapters, there's this conspicuous hole. <laughs> Nobody preaches on these chapters. It's literally like they just skip over them to get to the good stuff that follows later. Um, And so what I want to do is I want to walk through the events of these chapters and actually share with you in all honesty what happens in them and then see if we can actually learn anything about God and ourselves and how he arranges our lives through these events. In some ways, the first 20 years of David's life seems to read actually a bit like a fairy tale, in all honesty. Uh, Working in the fields, watching his father's sheep, David experiences the nearness of God, even to the point of enabling him to overcome the lion and the bear because God is with him. And so even as a child, Against everyone else's expectations, chosen over seven other older brothers, David is anointed to be the next king of Israel. And not long after that, David will find himself in the very palace of the king as a musician playing music for the king. And then in that very next chapter, we find David on the battlefield, defeating Goliath, accepting the challenge that no one else in Israel would accept. In other words, when you read about the first 20 years of David's life, it actually, by all indications, seems like David is on a fast track 
to realizing the promise of God that he's going to be the next king of Israel. But that's when his whole life seems to become derailed after that. Saul repeatedly tries to kill David out of his fear and jealousy, forcing David into the wilderness, running for his life. And there he will spend the next decade hiding in caves with a bunch of thugs and outlaws and misfits. In fact, his final year and a half will be spent living among his enemies in a town among the Philistines called Ziklag, where he lives a lie the whole time, disguising his real uh, behavior uh, to the Philistines so that he won't be killed by them. Well, David's tormentor, Saul, finally dies in battle against the Philistines. And it looks like at that moment, David should finally realize the promise of God that he will become the next king over the nation of Israel. But instead, David will have to wait even longer. In fact, he's going to have to wait another seven and a half years while this drawn-out civil war gets fought between the house of Saul and the house of David. And so that's the events that are recorded in chapters 2 to chapter 5 that we're going to look at today is this seven-and-a-half-year civil war that happens in Israel. In verses 1 and 4 of 2 Samuel chapter 2, it says, After this, David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up into any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, Go up. David said, To which shall I go up? And he said, To Hebron. And the men of Judah came, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. So upon God's direction, David takes his entire community And they leave Ziklag, and now he finally returns home to Judah, his home tribe. And he settles, based on God's leading, in this town called Hebron, where the people of Judah gather, and they anoint him as king. And it only makes sense because he's among his own people. But in verses 8 to 11, it says, But Abner, the son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, took Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanaim, and he made him king over Gilead and the Asherites and Jezreel and Ephraim and Benjamin and all Israel. Ishbosheth, Saul's son, was 40 years old when he began to reign over Israel, and he reigned two years. But the house of Judah followed David. And the time that David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. And so basically, this is a house divided between Judah, the southern tribe, and then the rest of the 11 tribes of Israel that all are a confederation together against Judah. And they side with the house of Saul. And what becomes clear is the real person who holds power over Israel is not Ishbosheth, the king, but it's this general named Abner. He's the one that actually is calling the shots. Ishbosheth, as the story will unfold, will reveal himself to be an absolutely spineless puppet king who is totally under the control of Abner. In verses 12 to 13, the war begins. Abner, the son of Ner, and the servants of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, went out from Mahanaim to Gibeon. And Joab, the son of Zeruiah, And the servants of David went out and met them at the pool of Gibeon. And they sat down, the one on the one side of the pool and the other on the other side of the pool. It's interesting, archaeologists have actually excavated this pool in Gibeon so that if you visit Israel, you could actually see this pool. It's it's enormously deep, okay? Um, And so Abner is there leading Israel's armies. And this man named Joab that we're going to talk about a little bit more because he's going to loom really large in the story of David in the coming chapters. He leads David's army. So what happens is that they make this arrangement and they get 12 men from each side. They are chosen and they pair up these soldiers, one against the other, in hand-to-hand combat. 
And what happens is that these 12 men from each side are so evenly matched that at the end of this competition, all 24 of them are dead. Okay? They're all dead. And so after these 24 die, all out war breaks out among these armies. And in verses 17 to 23, it says this, And the battle was very fierce that day. And Abner and the men of Israel were beaten before the servants of David. And the three sons of Zeruiah were there, Joab, Abishai, and Asahel. Now, it's not surprising that David's men prevailed over Saul's. Because you've got to remember, David's men were battle-hardened warriors. They were elite warriors that had basically spent the last 10 years in the wilderness fighting others. So these are like the cream of the crop when it comes to warriors. And we're introduced to these three characters, these sons of Zeruiah, Joab, Abishai, and Asahel, who are going to become such an important part of David's life. They're all children, we're told, of this person named Zeruiah. Now, Zeruiah is David's sister. And so these three men are David's nephews. And even though they are David's family, though they are his blood, they are going to cause David so much trouble in the days ahead for David. They're going to be like a, a thorn in his side constantly. And so the story goes on and says, Now Asahel was as swift of foot as a wild gazelle. And Asahel pursued Abner, and as he went, he turned neither to the right hand nor to the left from following Abner. Then Abner looked behind him and said, Is it you, Asahel? And he answered, It is I. Abner said to him, Turn aside to your right hand or to your left and seize one of the young men and take his spoil. But Asahel would not turn aside from following him. And Abner said again to Asahel, Turn aside from following me. Why should I strike you to the ground? How then could I lift up my face to your brother Joab? But he refused to turn aside. Therefore Abner struck him in the stomach with the butt of his spear, so that the spear came out at his back. And he fell there and died where he was. And all who came to the place where Asahel had fallen and died stood still. So, a lot of scholars think Asahel was the youngest of the three. And he starts pursuing Abner, the general of Saul's armies, as, the, as he flees the battlefield. And Abner is a, a seasoned soldier himself. And so he sees this young guy chasing him. And he says, stop it. <laughs> like, you know I will kill you if it comes to that. So stop chasing me. But Asahel will not listen. He is on a mission to chase after Abner. And so what it seems like happens is as, Ab- as Abner is being approached upon by Asahel, he seems to have stopped short and with the butt of his spear basically thrust it into Asahel so that he basically ran right into it and was impaled through his entire body by that spear. The story goes on in verse 24 to 26. But Joab and Abishai pursued Abner. And as the sun was going down, they came to the hill of Ammah, which lies before Gia, and on the way to the wilderness of Gibeon. And the people of Benjamin gathered themselves together behind Abner and became one group and took their stand on the top of, the, of a hill. Then Abner called to Joab, Shall the sword devour forever? Do you not know that the end will be bitter? How long will it be before you tell your people to turn from the pursuit of their brothers? So Abner is saying, let's just come to our senses here. Look at how many have died already today. When is this killing of our own brothers going to end? And in one of the rare moments where Joab actually listens to reason, he breaks off the chase and leaves Abner alone and goes home so that there won't be any more bloodshed that day. When the tally is counted at the end of that day of fighting, Saul's house will lose 360 warriors. David's house loses only 20. We get to chapter 3 in verse 1 and it says, There was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. And David grew stronger and stronger while the house of Saul became weaker and weaker. 
I said earlier how the true power in the house of Saul rested with Abner, not with Ishbosheth, the king. And this is on full display in the story that happens in chapter 3. Um, and I'm kind of glad youth group is not with us because so much of David's story is kind of rated R a little bit. But, uh, you know, this, this is what happens, okay? While there was war between the house of Saul and the house of David, Abner was making himself strong in the house of Saul. Now Saul had a concubine whose name was Rizpah, the daughter of uh, Ayah. And Ishbosheth said to Abner, Why have you gone into my father's concubine? Then Abner was very angry over the words of Ishbosheth and said, Am I a dog's head of Judah? To this day I keep showing steadfast love to the house of Saul, your father, to his brothers and to his friends, and have not given you into the hand of David. And yet you charge me today with a fault concerning a woman. God do to God do so to Abner, and more also, if I do not accomplish for David what the Lord has sworn to him, to transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and set up the throne of David over Israel and over Judah from Dan to Beersheba. And Ishbosheth could not answer Abner another word because he feared him. So Abner sleeps with Saul's concubine. And this wasn't really so much a sexual act as it was a power play. Because by sleeping with Saul's concubine, he was basically exerting his authority, saying, I now stand in the place of power where Saul once stood. And Ishbosheth knows this. And so he confronts him and says, how could you do this? How could you do this thing? And Abner is so insulted by what Ishbosheth says that based on that insult, he basically does a 180 and changes sides. And he says, I'm no longer on your team. I'm on David's team. And he says, because you said this to me, I'm going to hand the kingdom of Israel to David now. It's very interesting that he invokes God in this. But what we realize about Abner is he doesn't really care anything about God. He only uses the name of God when it's convenient for him. All Abner cares about is power. So the story goes on in verses 12 to 14. And Abner sent messengers to David on his behalf, saying, To whom does the land belong? Make your covenant with me. And behold, my hand shall be with you to bring over all Israel to you. And he said, good, I will make a covenant with you. But one thing I require of you, that is you shall not see my face unless you first bring Michael, Saul's daughter, when you come to see my face. Then David sent messengers to Ishbosheth, Saul's son, saying, give me my wife, Michael, for whom I paid the bridal price of a hundred foreskins of the Philistines. So David readily accepts Abner's invitation to make an alliance and to unite the house of Israel once again under one rulership of his kingship. But he has this one stipulation. When you come to me, you better have my wife with you when you show up. If you remember that story, Saul had given Michael, his daughter, in marriage to David. But when David fled into the wilderness, one of the ways that Saul added insult to injury was to give away his wife, Michael, to another man. Um, and so this is what happens next in the story, which is one of the, I think, one of the saddest and most poignant moments in this narrative. And Ishbosheth sent and took her from her husband, Paltiel, the son of Laish. But her husband went with her, weeping after her all the way to Bahurim. Then Abner said to him, go return. And he returned. <laughs> What a heartbreaking side story this is, right? Paltiel is the name of the man whom Michael was given to in marriage after David. And what we discover is that he actually fell deeply in love with her. And so now, like a lost puppy, he is following Michael all the way to Hebron, crying the whole way because he wants his wife. He wants his wife. And finally, Edmund says, go home, get out of here. 
go home. What a mess, right? What an absolute mess all of this is. I think this is such a powerful illustration of what we mean when we're talking about the brokenness of our world that is filled with sin. Because of Saul's sin, Michael has now been committed to two different men. And David has every right to reclaim his right to Michael because that's his wife. But in the process of reclaiming her, another man's heart is broken and devastated. And and I haven't even mentioned the dehumanizing way these women are being treated in all of this. They're, They're basically being treated like property. Whether it's Rizpah, Saul's concubine, or Michael, They're just being traded around like trading cards by these men. So Abner has a conference with the elders of Israel, and he tells them that he wants to unite all of the tribes under David's leadership. And the elders of Israel agree, and they say, we'll do it. And so Abner goes to Hebron to deliver the good news to David, and David receives Abner warmly and holds a banquet for him. And so after the celebration, Abner begins to head back to Israel to oversee the logistics of making this covenant with the 11 tribes of Israel and with the tribe of Judah. It happens to be that at that moment, Joab comes back from a raid. And he hears what happened. And he wasn't in on any of this. And he's filled with anger that God, that that David had aligned himself with Abner, who killed his brother. And so in chapter 3 and verse 26 to 30, the story goes on like this. When Joab came out from David's presence, he sent messengers after Abner, and they brought him back from the cistern of Sirah. But David did not know about it. And when Abner returned to Hebron, Joab took him aside into the midst of the gate to speak with him privately. And there he struck him in the stomach so that he died for the blood of Asahel, his brother. Afterward, when David heard of it, he said, I and my kingdom are forever guiltless before the Lord for the blood of Abner, the son of Ner. May it fall upon the head of Joab and upon all his father's house. And may the house of Joab never be without one who has a discharge or who is leprous or who holds a spindle or who falls by the sword or who lacks bread. So Joab and Abishai, his brother, killed Abner because he had put their brother Asahel to death in the battle at Gibeon. So if you think about it, Abner killed Asahel fairly in the field of combat. But now, in a very sneaky and deceptive way, Joab and uh, Abishai kill Abner as an act of revenge. And so Joab and Abishai are willing to jeopardize everything that David has been working toward and to actually undermine the end of this seven-and-a-half-year-long civil war all out of their selfish hunger for justice for their brother who was dead. Verse 31 to 39, the story continues. Then David said to Joab and to all the people who were with him, tear your clothes and put on sackcloth and mourn before Abner. And King David followed the the bier. They buried Abner at Hebron. And the king lifted up his voice and wept at the grave of Abner. And all the people wept. And the king lamented for Abner, saying, Should Abner die as a fool dies? Your hands were not bound, your feet were not fettered. As one falls before the wicked, you have fallen. And all the people wept again over him. Then all the people came to persuade David to eat bread while it was yet day. But David swore, saying, God, do so to me and more also, if I taste bread or anything else till the sun goes down. And all the people took notice of it, and it pleased them, as everything that the king did pleased all the people. So all the people in all Israel understood that day that it had not been the king's will to put to death Abner, the son of Ner. 
And the king said to his servants, Do you not know that a prince and a great man has fallen this day in Israel? And I was gentle today, though anointed king. These men, the sons of Zeruiah, are more severe than I. The Lord repay the evildoer according to his wickedness. So once again, we see David in lament. Before it was for Saul and Jonathan, and now it is for Abner, who has also been killed. And you can almost sense the sense of frustration with David with his nephews, going, what am I going to do with these guys? What do I do with them? One more chapter, <laughs> and we'll try to make sense of this, the craziness of all of this. Chapter 4 caps off all of these events with one final story. Two captains that were in Saul's army, one of them named Banna and the other one named Rechab, decide that they're going to help David out. And so on false pretenses, they sneak into Ishbosheth's house while he's taking his midday nap. And they kill him, stabbing him in the stomach. And then they decapitate him. And they bring the head to David, thinking that they're going to get a reward. And this is what happens in verse 8 to 11. They then bring his head to David, thinking expecting to get a reward. And they said to the king, here is the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy, who sought your life. The Lord has avenged my Lord, the king, this day on Saul and on his offspring. But David answered Rechab and Banna, his brother, the son of Rimmon, the Burethite, as the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life out of every adversity, when one told me, behold, Saul is dead and thought he was bringing good news, I seized him and killed him at Ziklag, which was the reward I gave him for his news. How much more when wicked men have killed a righteous man in his own house on his bed, shall I not now require his blood at your hand and destroy you from the earth? And so thus David has these two men executed, put to death for the crime of killing the king. And what's interesting is that although now both Abner and Ishbosheth, the two leaders of the house of Saul, are dead, not just dead, but they've been murdered, David is not blamed for either of their deaths. And all of Israel still unites and honors their commitment to come under his leadership and crown him as king. And so in chapter 5, we're just going to look at verses 1 to 5, and then I'm going to try to draw out some lessons here. We find these events. Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. In times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led out and brought in Israel. And the Lord said to you, you shall be shepherd of my people, Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years. At Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months, and at Jerusalem, he reigned over all Israel and Judah 33 years. Okay. So, are the lessons obvious <laughs> as to what God wants us to do? In response to all of this? I think the story of David challenges us to reevaluate what a life with God really looks like. At what point can we say that David has paid his dues and that now the fairy tale 
is gonna finally take shape because God is with him. It seems like it should be after Saul is dead and he takes the throne in Judah. But now his troubles are not coming from the outside. They're coming from his own kingdom, his own ranks. Not only that, but even his own relatives, his nephews. It's interesting that these nephews were great for David when he was in the wilderness. When he needed protection, he needed warriors. In fact, these nephews are counted among what are known as David's mighty men. This like three dozen men that in an amazing army were the elite stormtroopers, like the cream of the crop soldiers. They would be counted in that number. But now in this season of kingdom building, they end up causing him so much problems, so many headaches, so much grief. The way I think about it is like this. When you feel like all you've been given in life is a hammer, everything looks like a nail, right? And so these sons of Zeruiah are just swinging away with their hammers. They are warriors through and through. All they know is bloodshed. All they know is power. During David's decade in the wilderness, I don't think you could fault him if he felt like the whole storyline of his life basically got derailed because of Saul's jealousy and hatred for him. But now, even after Saul's death, I think what David has come to realize is I still don't hold any power over my life. It's these people like Abner and Joab and Abishai that are actually controlling the narrative here. They have basically hijacked my life so that I don't control my own destiny. It's when you read chapters 2 to 5 of 2 Samuel, what is so unusual is that David becomes a minor character in his own biography. David is hardly mentioned at all in these chapters. It's Abner and Joab and Abishai and Asahel who take center stage. They are the ones controlling the narrative, it seems. They are the ones that are dictating things. They are the ones that are setting the agenda. And basically, they are operating out of a place of faithlessness. God is not in their hearts. They are not thinking, what does God want in any of this? They are just breaking things left and right and causing destruction in their path. Their motto in life seems to be more, God helps those who help themselves, you know? And as a result, they make a mess of everything. And what I also find so interesting in this story is that David does not have any solutions to this. He can't figure out what to do. He says, what do I do with these nephews of mine? I don't know how to control them. I don't even know what to do with them because they're his own blood. He can't just kill them. He can't just get rid of them. They're family. And yet he's saying, so what do I do here? He feels stuck in some ways, and he doesn't know what's going on at some points, it seems. And yet what I'm going to argue here is that one of the main teaching points that I want to end here with is that in all of this drama, I think it's very easy to miss the fact that I think what we find in this part of David's life is a man that has been matured by his years in the wilderness, who has come to a deeper level of faith in God, to trust in God's control over everything despite what his crazy nephews are doing and despite all of the scheming of Abner and everything else, What David is operating out of is a place of faith in God. What is happening over and over again is that it seems like people are bending over backwards to try to hand the throne to David. 
trying to give God a helping hand to letting David be king. But what we find is that David will do nothing to take the throne by his own power. Every opportunity that he's put in front of him, he walks away from and says, not like this, not this way. And we find David lamenting Saul, his tormentor. And now he laments Abner. And as he laments Abner, there is a certain side, I think, in all of us saying, is it really, is, is Abner a guy that's worth lamenting over? Because he's not exactly an admirable figure in this story. He's almost like a villain. And yet I think that says something very powerful about David's heart, is that David, just like he could genuinely mourn the death of Saul, he could mourn the death of a man like Abner. He could see, even in a man like Abner, the image of God in him and the sanctity of that life that was snuffed out by his nephews. And I think what these chapters reveal more than anything else is that David has learned in his years in the wilderness that in all of that chaos and of everything else going on, that God is still in control. And that because God is in control, David can be patient and let God's will take effect without him having to worry. He doesn't have any quick fixes or any easy solutions to these problems. There's no moralizing happening in these chapters. There's no happy ending here. It's all messy. And yet, at the end of it all, David gets exactly what God promised. The tribes of Israel come and crown him king. In other words, David has learned the posture of humility and surrender and waiting. Jeffrey Myers says this, Do not be surprised to find yourself in a frustrating situation from which you cannot escape by means of controlling it. Not everything can be fixed. Not everything is a problem to be solved. Some things must be born, must be suffered and endured. Wisdom does not teach us how to master the world. It does not give us techniques for programming life such that life becomes orderly and predictable. Eugene Peterson puts it like this. The recurrent error of our technologically conditioned age is to look for what's wrong in our lives so that we can fix it or what needs doing so that we can have something worthwhile to do. There are things wrong that need fixing, and there are jobs that need doing, but the Christian life starts at the other end, not with us, but with God. What is God doing that I can respond to? How is God expressing his love and grace so that I can live appreciatively and in obedience? This is why the David story continues to prove so useful. It doesn't show us how we should live, but how we do live, and how in that living, if we keep our eyes open, stay honest, and avoid pretense, we encounter God alive, God in covenant with us, God pulling the best out of us. There's some real wisdom here in these words, wisdom for us, because I think the truth is, you know, at the beginning of this message, I sort of framed it as this fairy tale. And maybe as you listen to it, I say, I'm not asking for the fairy tale, but maybe it's, I'm using the wrong language here because I think as Christians, I think what we all long for is at least a life of blessing, right? A life in which we sense that God is blessing us. And I think when we look at the story of David, we're left really scratching our heads saying, what exactly is promised in this life of blessing? Because I think often when we think about a life of blessing, what we imagine is that because God is for us, he is going to somehow arrange all of the circumstances of our life so that things go our way, so that prayers are always answered, so that the miracle happens and we are always rescued out of our troubles and that everything works to our advantage. And when you look at the life of David, there are amazing high points of victory, but there are just as much of this kind of crazy drama that happens in David's life. And he is God's anointed one. And you look at it, and I think David must have wondered that half the time, going, am I really the chosen one? If I am, why is all of this happening in my life? Why is it that there's never a moment when there's peace in my house? 
When I can finally rest and feel like God is with me, oh, it's so good to just bask in God's blessing. But when you kind of read through the entire story of David, it's just craziness. One chapter after another that happens to him. And yet somehow in all of this, David is learning. David is growing. David has learned the posture of worship, the posture of surrender, the posture of patience and of listening and waiting on God. It's interesting that when David is anointed by the Israelites, they don't refer to him as our king. But in chapter 5, what they refer to him as is God called you to be our shepherd, our shepherd. I think what they were saying to David is, when you become king over us, reclaim what was lost under Saul. Because under Saul, we suffered so much because of his leadership. And I think what they were doing when they anointed David king and called him our shepherd is shepherd us back to God. Reconnect us with the God from whom we have lost touch. And show us the things of God once again. And I think that is exactly what God was doing in the crucible of the wilderness and in the crucible of that civil war. All of those years was that God was forming David into a man after his own heart. Somebody through whom God could lead his people with gentleness and patience and grace. And I think the reason why David became that kind of king for his people was because he first realized that God was his shepherd. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is what David learned in his years running for his life, was that God would be his shepherd. And I wonder for you sitting here today, if you've learned that lesson in your life. Because I think that is the singular lesson of faith, is the Lord is my shepherd. I have everything I need. I lack nothing. I don't know. Maybe there are some difficult people in your life right now. Maybe you feel like the story of your life has been hijacked by other people and if you've lost any sense of control over your own destiny. Maybe you have this growing frustration of wondering when that life of blessing is really going to take shape in your life. And I, I think there's faithless ways that we can react to that trying to manipulate other people, trying to change and engineer outcomes to work to our advantage. Sometimes it can even look like faith by demanding the miracle of God. If you are really with me, then do this for me, God. Change these circumstances. But one of the things that I see as a lesson over and over again in this life of David is that somehow in that mess, God is accomplishing his will in our lives. But sometimes that's happening right in front of us and we don't see it. But it takes eyes of faith to recognize how God is at work right in front of us that we don't recognize and that we don't see. And so that's what I want to invite you to this morning is to pray that prayer of invitation to God to say, open my eyes and see how you, my shepherd, 
at work in my life, even in the chaos, even with these difficult people that are trying to bring me down, even with all of the headaches that I feel like I'm constantly dealing with and circumstances that I don't feel are going my way, just like you taught David, teach me how you are nevertheless at work in my life to accomplish what you want to accomplish in me. Let's pray. As we uh, just get into a time of um, response and prayer and worship as we close out this service, would want to just invite you to do some personal reflection in your own life. And, and I wonder if there is that sense of ache in your heart for that fairy tale, the fairy tale ending, you know? And I wonder if out of that aching, there is a sense in which we may be sort of imposing that in the way that we read the Bible, in this sort of sanitized, simplistic way of saying, you know, if God is for me, then this is what must happen. If God is really with me, then this is how he needs to show up. And when we look at the life of David, there's no doubt about it that God does do some pretty dramatic and powerful things in David's life. But what we also see in the full story of David, not the sanitized version, is that David also is required to go through some pretty long seasons of struggle and suffering and pain in which it often feels like his life has been hijacked by the agenda of other people who are imposing their will on his life and making things difficult for him. But somewhere even in that, what I see in the growing story of David is the heart of a man that is learning how to be quiet before God and learning the mysteries of what it means that God is his shepherd and that God is caring for him and loving him through all of this. And that's the prayer of, that I have for you this morning is that you would know that faith of David that says the Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. My life is green pastures and still waters because I know that my God is my shepherd. We just pray that prayer of faith for a few minutes as our worship team comes to lead us in a response through singing.